Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. This society and culture has been changing so rapidly around us, it's hard to keep track of everything going on. Lord, we're grateful for your word. We thank you that you cared enough to breathe out your word through your Holy Spirit, moving men to write these words down. And that you cared enough that over the thousands of years of human history, you saw fit to preserve all of it so that we could have it today. And yet there are many who walk this earth who reject it, who don't think it's true, think it's a book of fables. Lord, to those of us who have had our spiritual eyes opened by you, have come before you in, in humility and repentance to seek your salvation through Jesus' death and resurrection and to make him king over the rest of our lives, to us it is life, it is power, it is order, it is truth. And so, Lord, I, I pray that as we come before your word uh, this morning, that you would again open our ears, our eyes, and our hearts to see what you have for us. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It seems like scammers and fraud and identity theft is something that is only a modern-day occurrence, maybe because it's talked about a lot more these days. Uh, but here are some of the most audacious frauds in recorded history, according to History.com. I'm in no way, don't get me wrong here, I'm in no way suggesting anyone take any of these as career inspiration. Uh, the first one up here is a man named Ferdinand Damara. He was born in the 1920s in Massachusetts, and after dropping out of high school and enlisting in both the Navy and Army and going AWOL from both, he posed as several different career individuals, including a college instructor, even though he didn't even finish high school, a prison warden, and a law school student. Damara's most audacious fake identity, however, was when he stole the credentials of a medical doctor he knew and joined the Royal Canadian Navy during the Korean War. Despite having no medical school training, Damara masqueraded as a naval surgeon, performed numerous surgeries on board a naval destroyer, and even removed a bullet from right next to a soldier's heart after only having read about how to do it from a medical book. Victor Lusting was born in 1890 in what was then Austria-Hungary, but ended up traveling all over the Western world. When he was a young man, Lustig read about how the Eiffel Tower, built for the 1889 World's Fair, was only supposed to last for 20 years. Did you know that? That when the Eiffel Tower was originally built, it was only built and marketed as only lasting for 20 years. It was in greatly in need of repairs and was expensive to maintain. So Lustig posed as a Paris city official and set up meetings with scrap, the city's scrap metal dealers to garner bids on who would get the scrap metal from the Eiffel Tower. Well, fraud begets fraud, and one dealer actually bribed Lustig with a large sum of money in order to secure this non-existent bid. Lustig ended up getting both the large bribe for the metal 
and the huge amount the dealer uh, paid for the metal itself. Once the dealer found out he had been scammed, he was too embarrassed to press charges. Lustig ended up in America in the 30s, and if you can believe it, actually scammed Al Capone. <laughs> he told Capone that he had an investment that would double his money, took a sum of Capone's money, waited a short period of time, and then returned to Capone, telling him that the investment didn't work out and that he was returning his money. Upon seeing Lustig's apparent honesty, Capone gave Lustig a monetary reward, which historians believe may have been Lustig's plan all along. And in the early 1700s, George Salmanazar became a celebrity in Britain after writing a book all about a country that he visited called Formosa. Salmanazar was embraced as an exotic traveler and his book became an instant success, garnering him profit and speaking engagements. The problem was that, even though the island Salmanazar did exist as present-day Taiwan, the island and culture of Formosa that he wrote about certainly did not. <laughs> However, one of the major reasons why Salmanazar and his book were so convincing was that he even invented a whole language that he said was the language spoken in Formosa. The language was so seemingly legitimate that for years after Salmanazar was exposed as a fraud, linguists elsewhere that had not heard that news yet still thought his Formosan language was real and were continuing to actually study it. In these examples, who these people were portraying was believed to be real, so much so that lots of money was passed around. But in reality, all these people were, were fakes and frauds. On the other hand, in our passage today, a bunch of people believe Jesus to be a fraud, when in reality, he was the real deal. And in today's world of frauds and beliefs and worldviews that are simply not founded on reality even, Jesus is the reality of what's really going on in this world and the next. We last left Jesus last week still in Galilee, having told his half-brothers that he wasn't yet going to go to the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. We talked about the significance of the Jewish feast, of the Feast of Tabernacles, especially its connections to the prophesied future uh, messianic kingdom on earth, along with Jesus' brother's expectations of him going to Jerusalem at that point. In short, Jesus' brothers wanted him to go to the required feast in Jerusalem, the one connected the most to the messianic kingdom uh, prophecy and expectation in order to declare himself that messianic king and convince the masses of people there in Jerusalem uh, for that feast to follow him in that role. Why were Jesus's brothers trying, to, trying so hard to get him to go at that point? Just like how it would be today. They wanted a piece of the action as the brothers of this really famous person. But Jesus knew it both wasn't the time for that, nor was his first visit to earth the purpose for that. Both the time and purpose for that is coming in the future at Jesus' second coming. In the meantime, as Jesus told his brothers, the world hates him. 
because he testifies that what they do and how they process through everything and how they view everything is what? Evil. All of it. And if you remember last week, I said that as followers of Jesus today, a simple litmus test to see if we're being the light of the world that Jesus has called us to do is this. If your beliefs about any given topic, especially when it comes to salvation or the hot button issues of today, are readily embraced and hailed by the world, then something is wrong. Your understanding of what the Bible says about salvation or any given topic is not based on an accurate and plain understanding of the inerrant and infallible word of God. On the other hand, if your beliefs on salvation or any hot button issue is based on an accurate and plain understanding of God's inerrant and infallible word and the world hates you for it, then you are being the light of the world that Jesus has called you to be. Very simple litmus test. According to Jesus in chapter 7, verse 7, it's that simple. For, that, for what God's word says and instructs on any given topic is always going to be the complete opposite of what the world embraces, promotes, and preaches. And we see that. We see that more and more with each passing day. Now, in our passage this morning, Jesus goes to Jerusalem to fulfill the required sacrifices and offerings of the Feast of Tabernacles, but in secret. And that's what brings us to our passage this morning. So, if you brought your Bible with you, please turn to John chapter 7. We're going to be picking up in verse 10. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to John chapter 7. It's in the New Testament. You can keep flipping forward. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, uh, or look this up on your favorite Bible app on your smartphone. I want all of us to see this together. John chapter 7, verse 10, we read this. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. Now, obviously, Jesus starts teaching in the temple in a few verses. So it's not like Jesus dressed all in black with a ski mask and repelled into Jerusalem under the cover of night here. But what this is getting at is that, what Jesus, that Jesus did not draw attention to himself as a messianic king by, say, riding a donkey through Jerusalem's gate like he would do only six to seven months from this point. He might have just tried to stick to the crowded areas while he brought his offerings and sacrifices. However covert Jesus was, his enemies were actively looking for him. Why? To kill him. They didn't want his autograph. They wanted to kill him. Verse 11. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? As we've seen in John's gospel so far, that when he simply refers to the Jews, he's talking about the Jewish religious, religious leaders and their associates, the, the priests, the Pharisees, the scribes, their henchmen, etc. These guys knew that if he was indeed the Messiah, he, he kept claiming to be, that he would have to come to Jerusalem at some point during that feast and fulfillment of the Jewish law, or he couldn't actually be the Messiah. You like that? Jesus' enemies are in reality 
banking on that Jesus is the Messiah so that he does show up to Jerusalem so that they can kill him. Talk about cognitive dissonance here, isn't it? Meanwhile, while the religious leaders are actively searching the streets of Jerusalem for Jesus, we catch a screenshot of what the general public was thinking and saying to each other about what they thought of him. Verse 12, there was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying he is a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews, the, the religious leaders. As one biblical scholar points out, the fact that the general public knew that the religious authorities were actively searching for Jesus to kill him, hyped him up in the crowd there for the feast. In other words, Jesus had gone viral in Jerusalem, and everyone was taking to TikTok and Twitter and Instagram to give their two cents as to what their opinion was of him. He was trending and one only needed to look up hashtag Jesus to see what everyone's entitled opinion was about him. What do we find with hashtag Jesus? Well, what, what we see is that some were saying that he was a good man. Others were claiming that in connection with our opening illustrations, he was a straight up fraud leading the people astray from true Jewish faith. You know what? If this happened today, if this happened today, I think we'd see the same exact opinions given on all these platforms with hashtag Jesus, don't you think? We'd see the exact same opinions. We'd see the range of that he was a good man, a good teacher of good advice, to the other side of that he was merely a fraud, even deceiving himself that he was the Messiah. But back then, as noted by one biblical scholar, the rumblings that Jesus was a fraudulent prophet carried with it a much darker consequence than simply being shadow banned. According to the law, Jesus could have legally been stoned to death if the authorities believed he was a fraudulent prophet. Any talk of Jesus, especially if it was positive, was feared to be shared openly for fear that the people talking about it would, they them, would themselves face harsh penalties by the authorities. Verse 13 again, yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the authorities. Man, is this a verse in a book written close to 2,000 years ago? Or is this merely an observation on how things are today? <laughs> Thank you. I told you last week that John mostly spent his book on Jesus' third and final year of ministry, the year of opposition, in order to point out the persecution and opposition that Jesus faced so that it could be an encouragement to the early church facing death and persecution from all sides. But connecting to today, something dawned on me the other day. It used to be, not that long ago, that biblical Christianity was generally thought of as good in this country, right? And met with, at worst, indifference. And most people would at least claim to believe in the Bible and its truths. But about five to ten years ago, the spiritual climate in the country started to rapidly transform. 
Seeking to have as, as accurate of an understanding of the Bible was tossed out the window more and more. And more and more of the Bible was seen as fable, legend, irrelevant, and downright rejected as cultural truth. And now, very recently, I'd say just within the past year or less, what we're seeing is that biblical Christianity is now the outright enemy in the country. It's, we are enemy number one in this country. If you speak up for what the Bible simply says on any given topic, especially the hot button topics, you're lambasted and outright attacked. If you speak up even for science and reason and logic, I'm not even talking about the Bible, just science, region, reason, and logic, you risk your reputation destroyed, your career lost, and being completely silenced and banned. We now live in a world where crisis pregnancy centers and churches, once seen as, at worst, innocuous and irrelevant, actively being attacked. We now live in a world where crisis pregnancy centers are being maligned by government leaders as being what should be gotten rid of now. We now live in a world where standing up for biblical truth that goes against government or popular cultural narratives and agendas will get you attacked without a second thought. Christians who hold to Jesus as the and only source of salvation and eternal life and who hold to the accurate and therefore true understanding of God's standards in his inerrant and infallible word are being attacked and will just continue to be attacked. We shouldn't be surprised about this at all. But should we fear that attack as the crowds feared repercussions by their authorities and be silent when it comes to standing for biblical truth in love? Should we be silent? Not at all. I don't know about you, but I'd rather face discipline from my Savior and King and Heavenly Father than anything any mere human being can do to me. Jesus himself declared, and do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but are unable, if they're just simply unable, to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. That's who we should really be fearing. Jesus himself then says elsewhere, and he was saying to them all, if anyone wants to come after me, if anyone wants to follow me, he must deny himself, not celebrate yourself and whatever your lifestyle is, deny himself. And obviously this means herself as well. Take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, this is the one who will save it. For what good does it do a person if he gains the whole world and the whole world loves what he believes about any given topic, but loses or forfeits himself, his own soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. 
man, that just hits you right here, doesn't it? How seriously are we taking these words and standing up for Jesus and his truth? I'm convinced these words are needed more now than ever, except perhaps in the early days of the church of persecution, torture, and death, even though it's not going to be too much longer and we're going to be in those same days again. How do we pick up our crosses daily, following Jesus and facing these days of attack, spiritual darkness and warfare, and impending worse persecution by standing for Jesus and the truth of his word? Because it's all well and good to say this is what we should be doing, but how do we do it? Here's how. For God has not given us a spirit of cowardice, of timidity, what has he given us? He's given us a spirit of power and love and sound judgment. We should not be like everybody else in the world, running around like a chicken with its head cut off, not having any clue what's going to happen uh, next in the world. We have been given the Holy Spirit of sound judgment to think through everything in a biblical and sound and logical way. These are the Apostle Paul's last words to Pastor Timothy. As Paul shivered in a cold prison and knew he was about to be martyred for his preaching of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit still gave him these words to declare. The Spirit, of course, is the Holy Spirit to empower us to not shrink back in fear of what the world will do to us and rather stand for God's truth found in his word in power, in love, and in sound judgment. Getting back to this morning's passage, Jesus appears in the temple at this point and not putting himself up on the pedestal that his brothers wanted him to, but teaching what he knew his father wanted him to be teaching, verses 14 through 15. But when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews then were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? Word spreads fast that Jesus is in the temple and teaching, and so inevitably the religious leaders who want to kill Jesus show up. They can't help but listen to what Jesus is talking about, and it makes quite the impression on them. They can't wrap their minds around it. In their minds, for Jesus to speak so authoritatively and so deeply, he had to have been educated in some traditional rabbinical school. But everyone, including they, knew he hadn't been. In fact, as we saw last week when we glimpsed a verse in Mark, everyone knew Jesus was the carpenter's son and as such have been raised in the craft of carpentry. Even though Jesus didn't need to watch any YouTube videos on how to build a table, no one understood how, not only did he understand about what he did about the Jewish scriptures, but how to teach them so powerfully. Jesus' teaching was that of something that no one had thought of before, that the religious leaders concluded that there was no other explanation other than that these were Jesus' own observations and creative interpretations. As God, Jesus could have very well said, well, yeah, I mean, I am the manifestation of the word of God, so this is my, and therefore correct, interpretations of God's word. 
But Jesus wanted to make an even greater point. All this time, these guys wanted to kill Jesus. Remember that. Why? A, they were jealous of him. And B, they truly believed he was a blasphemer for claiming to be God. So in his response, Jesus tells the religious leaders, so enthralled by what he was saying, that what he was saying was not his own understanding, interpretation, or teaching, but the one whom the leaders claimed to worship. Verses 16 through 18. So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. God the Father was Jesus' authority and the source of his teaching. What a perfect response to these leaders. Because now, what are the religious leaders now forced to decide? Are we going to continue to try to kill this guy because of what he says? Or does he really speak from Almighty God? If they decide on the latter, then the one they're really fighting against and attacking is Yahweh, the one they claim to worship. As pointed out by one biblical scholar, what Jesus is also doing in his response is calling the ones out to kill him to put their faith in him as the representative of God the Father. He doesn't just say, oh yeah, and then come back with some burn. He comes back with a call for them to put their faith in him. This is the beginning of infuriation with Jesus in the temple that culminates in the first act of the Gospel of John, where the crowd of people align themselves with the authorities and actively try, without success, because of divine prevention, to seize Jesus in order to kill him later on in this chapter. I mentioned not too long ago that, especially today, There is no longer ambivalence when it comes to faith in Jesus for salvation. There seems to be only two responses these days to being told about Jesus. Anger or acceptance. Those are the only two options anymore. There's no longer any indifference. It's either anger or acceptance anymore. And we will see this more and more and more as we get into this chapter of John. And we see that more and more and more today. But even here, what the people are getting increasingly more and more enraged at Jesus for is his claim to be the representative of God the Father. And if anyone really wanted to do the will of God the Father, they would see and accept Jesus as as that representative. Not only that, but what does Jesus also claim here at the end of verse 18? That there is no unrighteousness. In him, right? That's what he claims at the end of verse 18. Who is the only one that the claim of holiness or perfect righteousness is made of in the Jewish scriptures? There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So, 
What is Jesus really getting at here at the end of verse 18 when he follows up his declaration that he is the representative of God and that if anyone really wanted to worship God, they would see that with the statement that there is no unrighteousness found in him. He's really getting at that not only is Jesus the representative of God, he is God. Like was pointed out, faith is where true understanding of God and his word starts. As Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It has to start with that faith. An accurate understanding of God's word starts with a humble faith in Jesus, that his death and resurrection paid for your sin as a substitute, and that we all must repent of our sin and form ourselves, seeking God's transformation of who he wants us to be. If you don't have that, and you don't start with that, you simply will not have an accurate understanding of what God's word says, nor what his wisdom and instruction means for every generation, society, and culture. This is why it's so easy for people who refuse to put their trust in Jesus as their Savior and King to manipulate the Bible to say what they want it to say. Let me put it to you this way. Just because some social media influencer or talk show host or politician or even church leader throws around Bible verses to back up their anti-biblical views doesn't mean they're right in doing so. I don't want anyone to be deceived here. In fact, if they don't even claim Jesus as their Savior and King, they don't even have the right to be throwing verses in the faces of Bible-believing Christians. As the writer of Hebrews says, if they don't have faith in Jesus, they're not pleasing God with anything that they do, let alone ripping verses out of context to say something they were never meant to say. And if one truly does believe in Jesus as Savior and King, who are they seeking to please? Jesus. And who does Jesus represent? God the Father. And whose word is it that's up for grabs seemingly? God's. So if one truly does believe in Jesus as Savior and King, and truly then seeks to please God with their lives, what must they then truly seek to do? understand his inerrant, infallible word the way it was originally and contextually written. Then and only then can that scripture then be applied to today. Not the other way around. Throw that out the window. Not the other way around of ripping verses out of context and forcing them through an alternative worldview to make them say what you want them to say. Why? Because a truly God-honoring way of understanding Scripture starts with faith in Jesus and in turn must be through the opening of our spiritual eyes by way of the Holy Spirit to see Scripture exactly as it says it is, itself, the inerrant and infallible Word of God Himself. 
That is where any solid understanding of the Bible starts. If the Holy Spirit is the one enlightening understanding of Scripture, he will never reveal some kind of enlightening that is contrary with the rest of Scripture. That is just purely illogical. In fact, the only way to accurately understand God's Word is by comparing it with what the rest of the Bible as a whole teaches. In other words... The only way to understand what God's word is actually saying, no matter what time period or culture we live in, is to look at it in light of the Bible as a whole. Once you start cherry-picking verses to back up what you've already concluded in your worldview, or reading your own personal experiences into verses, or only interpreting different verses according to cultural influences, or belief in relative truth, or wokeism, you can make any verse say anything you want. The condemning problem with that, however, and I say this to any pastor, church leader, or anyone with any religious or spiritual influence on social media or not, who is doing this, is that you are at best being wildly inaccurate and therefore promoting lies, and at worst, purposely leading people astray from the truth of God. And what does Jesus himself say about this? But if you cause one of these little ones who trusts in me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to have a large millstone tied around your neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. That is not politically correct, but that is the truth of God. The truth starts with Jesus. The truth starts with acceptance that your sin separates you from most holy God. That Jesus, as God, came to pay your sin death debt as a substitute on your behalf with his physical death on the cross. That he rose again on the third day to give you new transformative spiritual life. That you must repent of your sin to accept this gift of Jesus' death and resurrection on your behalf. And that you must recognize him as king over the rest of your life, seeking to please him in every way then the Holy Spirit will be given to transform you and the whole way you look at the world and reveal how best and accurately understand the Word of God. In fact, in connection with our opening illustration, viewing the world and everything that's happening in it through an inaccurately biblical view and redemptive eyes by way of Jesus is the only legitimate and real way of looking at reality. Any other way is reality that is skewed. Everything else is illogical, is inconsistent, and ultimately, if you keep going down that road, will completely fall apart. If you then, through faith in Jesus for your salvation and commitment to him as king over the rest of your life, Seek to understand the scriptures as accurately as possible as Paul told Timothy to do. And therefore, as God intended in their original meaning, as we talked about last week and as I brought up again, you will be hated by the world. Don't be shocked by that. Don't be surprised by that. You will be called a bigot. You will be called every kind of phobic person under the sun. You'll be called insensitive, unloving, a poor follower of Jesus. And those are just the PG-rated things. 
As Jesus said, if we really want to follow him, we must first repent and take him as Savior and King. Then, every day for the rest of our lives, we must pick up our crosses daily, never being ashamed of what he actually said and meant by what he said and did. Knowing that the world is dead set against the gospel of Jesus and the truth of God's word and will downright hate us and attack us for standing up for that truth in love. For when all is said and done, whether or not our faith results in even an early death, God's word makes this promise. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. And... The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ. And then Paul is very clear about this. If indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what Jesus said to these religious leaders who challenged him as he was teaching in the temple and what that pointed out to us in the rest of your word that it all starts with a humble faith in Jesus that his death and resurrection was a substitute for our sin death debt that we need to repent and take you as our savior and king and then through the Holy Spirit's enlightening, we can have an accurate and complete understanding of the Word of God in order to apply it to every situation we will face in this life. And again, as we talked about last week, let us remember that as Paul says in Ephesians 6, our fight is not with flesh and blood. We do not actually fight flesh and blood. The fight that we are in the midst of is a spiritual war. We are fighting forces that are unseen. And only because of that, we are to put on the full armor of God. Lord, I pray that each and every day we wake up, we'd say thanks to you for giving us another day, and then we would put on that full armor of God, ready to face another day, stand up for the truth and love where we need to, and never be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us be these lights of the world that you have called us to. Empower us through your Holy Spirit to do just that. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.